everyone. Welcome to MD Talk. I'm LaQuinta Jernigan, the Executive Vice President for the Americas at MD Group, and I am so excited to welcome our guest for today's episode, Jamika Hill. She's the Director, Patient Engagement and Advocacy and Clinical Child Diversity at Moderna. And in this episode, we're going to dive into Moderna's groundbreakingly diverse COVID-19 mRNA vaccine trials and the incredible effort and commitment that they put into achieving one of the most diverse clinical trials in history, even slowing down enrollment in September 2020 when it looked like they were failing to recruit enough Black, Latinx, and Native American participants. Welcome, Jamaica. I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Oh, thanks for having me, LaQuinta. I'm excited to have this a really important dialogue. Today, we want to dig into why diversity in the vaccine trials was especially important, how Moderna went about achieving it, and what we hope that the lasting legacy of this commitment to diversity will be within the clinical trial industry. In our first two MD Talk episodes, we discussed at length the reasons diversity in clinical trials matter and how barriers, including lack of information, accessibility, as well as historic and ongoing racism and discrimination, can make patient recruitment within communities of color difficult. We've also talked about how overcoming these difficulties is vital at the beginning of any drug development journey to ensure treatments benefit and are safe for the entire population. Of course, due to the unprecedented scale of this pandemic, it was even more important for the COVID-19 vaccine trials. COVID-19 has taken a heavy and disproportionate toll on people of color. In the US, for example, black people have been infected at nearly three times the rate of white Americans and were twice as likely to die from the virus. There are a number of social factors at play here. You know, for example, these are groups that are more likely to have pre-existing health conditions that predispose them to COVID-19 infection. Sometimes they're less likely to have health insurance coverage. And most often, these communities are most likely or more likely to work in jobs where they can't work remotely, they can't do from home work, and perhaps maybe even live in multi-generational housing, which would place older at-risk adults in close contact with younger people who may not even know that they have the virus. And then most importantly, we have to remember that a lot of these communities, they fall into that essential worker job category, which results in greater exposure to the public. All right, Tamika, so with all of that being said, let's, let's dive right into this because we have so much that we can talk about today. Why was it important to Moderna to achieve such a diverse representation of communities of color in the COVID-19 vaccine trials? Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's a great question, right? I think that this is a long-standing problem that as an industry, we've been you know, talking about and trying to address for some time. But I think COVID really was the catalyst at Moderna. Um, we're really committed to developing vaccines and therapeutics and medicines for all populations. Um, we want to try and pioneer a new way of bringing medicine to those that need it most. And so ensuring that we had adequate representation um, was essential at the very core of our strategy for how we were planning to make sure that people from all backgrounds were aware of the opportunity um, and then think about strategies to make sure that we were um, reducing the barriers for them to participate. Um, I want to make sure that, you know, I kind of underscore that Behaviors and attitudes around the country, um, they vary and within different groups vary, right? Uh, we're not a monolith when it comes to um, people of color, women, you know, 
you know, people in different regions. And so we really wanted to make sure that we had a very strategic approach and that at the very core of how we were at our clinical trials, we were leading with empathy and understanding and also knowing that we don't know everything. And so, you know, how can we engage community leaders to help involve, um, you know, what might be best for their community in our strategy. But um, I must say that that commitment came from our leadership. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest distinguishers around Moderna is that um, health equity is at the very core of our Moderna leadership. It's grounded in our values. And so from that perspective, um, delaying enrollment um, to ensure that we had adequate representation, although not ideal, was something that was more important than us kind of getting to the, the finish line, uh, but getting there with the wrong trial composition. Yeah. And, you know, health equity, I mean, it really it starts with clinical research, right? Um, so, so much of what we do in clinical research will really change the outcomes of health equity for communities of color all the way along the line. So it's great that your your leadership has that as a core commitment. And I think it's really important. One of the things that you just said is you didn't know everything. You know, that's, that's a huge first step, acknowledging that we don't know everything. We aren't living and breathing in these, in all of these various communities every day. So depending on those community leaders and the people who are there to help guide us in the best ways to work with these communities and engage with them is so critical. So very critical. Yeah. It's so critical. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because if you think about our world prior to COVID, especially um, for those that have been involved in clinical trials and clinical research, um, so I've been doing this for 21 years, you know, similar to yourself, LaQuinta, and the reality is that prior to the pandemic, most people in the general public had never heard about a clinical trial, let alone participated in one. And so what does that mean, right? What is participating in research um, where the outcome is unknown? You know, what does that mean? Um, I think also educating individuals about what the clinical trial process is was an additional and added barrier that we absolutely had to address and make sure that we were providing um, tools and resources so that they felt comfortable um, from all backgrounds actually participating. Um, we want to demystify the notion that, you know, you're a guinea pig um, if you participate in a clinical research trial. Um, but we also want to be very honest and transparent around what potential risks are and benefits. And that when it came to COVID, you know, we were literally... Um, trying to hit a moving target, and the epi was ever-evolving, and so we really needed to work with community leaders and make sure that the questions that were particular for that uh, community, we were able to answer. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Jamaica, offline, you and I have talked about this before, you know, clinical research, the idea of participating in a clinical trial, it really should be a public health initiative, and, you know, there is a huge educational component that I'm really interested to see how we take this momentum where more people, like you said, than ever before are aware of what a clinical trial is. How are we going to embed that into public health um, moving forward and really kind of use this momentum to expand the possibilities for participation in other indications? Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm really eager to see what happens with. Yeah, I'm eager too, and I'm hopeful that this has kind of galvanized um, you know, the industry and reinforce the commitment to make sure that this was not a, a one and done situation, that we didn't just focus on on COVID and now we're back to, you know, just making sure that we enroll clinical trials. Um, yes, we want to bring new medicines to the public as quickly as possible and as safely as possible, but we absolutely can't kind of abandon those that are most impacted by diseases um, in that trial composition moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely.
And next question, you know, when we talk about diversity, obviously, um, and you touched on this a little bit early, we don't just mean diversity and, and color and communities of color, but, you know, true diversity really takes into account age and gender, job roles, economic status, physical health, mental health, all of those things. So how did Moderna trials achieve such a diverse population across many of these areas as well? Yeah, I mean, it was a uh, extremely large team effort, but we um, we set goals and, and, and benchmarks as far as wanting to make sure that we had um, enough females to male ratio. Um, historically, um, most clinical trials, as you're aware, are comprised of uh, middle-aged white men living in coastal regions. And so we wanted to make sure that um, we also had enough data on the safety and efficacy of women. So we made a, um, a very concerted effort to make sure that we had equal distribution there. We also wanted to make sure that um, those with underlying health conditions were also included. And so um, while we did write a lot of that into our protocol design to make sure we had cohorts set aside, um, we also really um, partnered with our sites um, to make sure that we had a, a complete understanding of who they are planning to enroll and reach out to um, and what those individuals, what those demographics were, their actual age. We didn't just want older adults, um, 65 and older, while that was important. We also needed individuals who were 18 to 20, you know, 20 to 45, et cetera. And we needed those in large numbers so that we could make sure, depending on an individual's life stage, that the vaccine was also safe and effective. Um, what we're now doing and, and you know, just on track with, with the other industry um, organizations that are bringing about COVID vaccines is we're now bridging down into adolescents and pediatrics. Um, I do want to touch on, you know, when it comes to medical research, we want to be, um, you know, safety is at the very foundation and heart of what we're trying to make sure that that we're doing. And so women who are pregnant, who um, children who can't provide their own consent, um, and also those with, um, you know, severe immunocompromised conditions are considered a vulnerable population. And so traditionally, those groups um, are not included in the primary trial that's first conducted. Um, and we take that really serious at Moderna, I think, as an industry, but for good reason. It's not to exclude anybody. It's because we want to make sure that when we're bridging down and when we're um, providing these vaccines and therapeutics for individuals who are most at risk or most vulnerable, that we um, have made sure that it's safe and healthy adults and volunteers first. Um, and so we're continuing that exercise of bridging down um, here at Moderna. Um, we're now in the in the children early, um, I think two to six and um, and six months to two years old. So um, it's exciting to think that hopefully we'll get to a place where we can not just um, inoculate individuals who are adults or, or preteen, but also those that are, are the youngest, right? And, and truly the most vulnerable, which are our youngest children. So, um, but I also, you know, just want to touch on, I think that when it comes to clinical trials and diversity and inclusion, we often focus on demographics and diversity, right? But it's also really critical to make sure that what are we doing to foster an environment of inclusion, right? And affirm individuals within our trials. What type of data are we providing back to those individuals so that they know what's going on, what's happening with the trial, with their own data? Um, and then once they actually are in the trial um, and we're nearing the end, you know, what happens next? 
um, are they able to continue to participate in any extension studies or add-on studies and you know kind of what happens to their data over time i think that as a society people are very leery and understandably about um, you know what are you going to do with my data especially from a scientific nature right and i think we owe it to individuals to be able to articulate um, in very understandable language what the plan is and to keep them involved throughout the life cycle of the trial absolutely i mean Patients want to be in the know. They want to know what to expect. They want to know what happens next. And so you really can't communicate enough when you're, you know, talking about, you know, those that are participating in clinical trials. And I can say from on behalf of most parents that, you know, the research that you're conducting right now and adolescents um, and children and small children is it's just, we're all very, very excited for it because you're right. That is, you know, one of our most vulnerable communities right now. And um, so we're all, you know, very much on the edge of our seat waiting for, for those clinical trials to produce the sufficient data that is needed um, yeah. to, to protect that, those groups. Um, so, Jamika, let me ask, what what were the main barriers to diverse participant recruitment that you were encountering when you made the decision or leadership made the decision to pause the trial in September of 2020? Um, that's a huge decision to make. Yeah. So what, what led to that decision? And then how did you change course to, to fix it? Yeah, it was a really unique situation because I think what some might be a little shocked to hear is that we had, you know, tens of thousands of individuals who registered and wanted to be a part of the clinical trial. I think the pandemic, you know, put, provides a, a very unique landscape that we probably and hopefully won't experience again. Um, but there was really the willingness to step forth and be a part of the vaccine trials. And that was from people of all backgrounds. Um, we needed to make sure that we were making sure we weren't asking individuals to travel too far. So I think the logistical barriers was one that we certainly had to be mindful of. Um, and we were very strategic and we tried to make sure that we had research sites located. Um, but again, the epi was evolving and the hotspots of where COVID was emerging was in real time. Um, and so it was really critical that, uh, you know, while we have a site, you know, asking somebody to commute three hours each way, that might seem doable in the height of a pandemic when you're really eager, but what happens during the follow-up phases um, when we're you know, trying to assess long-term safety, um, we still want to make sure that it's a viable option. So that was one of the, the big barriers. I think another barrier that we ran into was um, implicit bias on the site side. Um, so while you know, not popular, the reality is that we all come with our own implicit bias, and especially when it comes to um, different groups who we may um, be around or from a site's perspective who they may see often at their clinic, um, there's kind of some assumptions. So if you're now asking a site to include individuals from their community who they don't regularly see within their site, um, we really needed to work to make sure that we were overcoming some implicit bias and some, some basic elements. Um, one example is, you know, this element about affirming an individual. So if an individual comes into an office and they um, are from a racial ethnic background and all of a sudden we have sites say, well, they'll come into the office, but then they leave. Um, and, you know, we're not quite, you know, getting at the heart, we don't understand. We thought we had great conversations. So, you know, we provided talking points. We tried to make sure that those um, time between when they spoke to the individual and came in, that it was a shortened time frame. But then we also asked the site, can you tell us a little bit about what your site looks like? 
So if I were to come into your site, you know, what would I see? And they were like, well, we're just playing the news, you know, we just have traditional pictures on the walls. Um, and therein lies the challenge, right? Um, when we think about COVID and about, you know, what is polarizing to people, things like news topics um, is at the very height of that. And so um, simple fixes such as maybe turning on a cooking show or National Geographic or something um, that's non-political can have a huge impact. It's not people's willingness to, to stand up and say, I want to be a part. Um, it's sites, lack of confidence and lack of um, historically kind of um, working and engaging with different groups. I think that people really want to be sensitive and sometimes in being sensitive, we just go back to what we know. Um, we also knew that speed was at the ultimate, you know, cost here. And we were trying to bring about um, a new vaccine at the speed of science. And so oftentimes with science, when you say, okay, we need a diverse population, but we also want you to, you know, enroll this trial as quickly as possible, they are seen as mutually exclusive. And so we really worked to make sure that, um, you know, sites understood that, yes, we can enroll quickly, but we can also make sure that our trials are diverse. Um, and while I think there was significant effort, there was significant local advocacy and community organizations across the nation that helped um, kind of engender trust within, within the communities and helped um, people raise their hand. Ultimately, what happened is that sites were enrolling so quickly, those that they had been accustomed to seeing that we were just not, we, we would have finished the trial with inadequate representation. And so Moderna leadership made the very bold decision that they were going to put people ahead of profit and safety at the very forefront. How can we say that this is a vaccine for all when all people are not included um, according to, to the, you know, the representation that we see here in the census? Um, and so we did pause and delay enrollment um, and we learned a lot from it, but I think we also learned that, you know, setting goals up front with sites about, hey, this is what you're um, underlying demographics look like in your community. And this is what we need for you to contribute along with the other sites in order for us to make sure that we have a, a mosaic of our diverse society. I think the sooner we can do that in the process, the more sites are really interested in also achieving that um, COVID landscape and um, kind of the evolving learnings. It was happening so quickly um, that I think moving forward, we can certainly carry those learnings with us. Um, but I think COVID definitely exposed you know, the, the long-standing issue that we've had with diversity and trials, um, but it also forced us to take a look at ways to break down those barriers and make sure that we were inclusive. I mean, honestly, people before profit, we could end the episode just with that statement alone. I mean, how refreshing is it to hear that coming from within this industry, coming from, from a company like Moderna and you know, the work that you did with the sites, I mean, that's so important. Just basically explaining to them what the demographics are for their regions, explaining what your expectations are, and then asking the question, are you asking these people? Like you said, there's willingness, but you, but we're not asking, you know, and that's part of, that's the one of the biggest steps to take. So, I mean, all of that, I think, those are all strategies that can be implemented throughout our industry for all clinical trials, just those basics. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really important that we set these benchmarks early, right? Because also we're trying to make sure we engender trust within communities and there's valid, um, you know, there's, there's understandable reason 
why people may be leery about medical research based on historical atrocities. And so by setting benchmarks and letting sites know this is who your underlying community demographics are and this is what we need you to achieve um, relative to what the other sites are going to be contribute. Also make sure that when they reach out to individuals, they're reaching out to the right individual so they're not having to turn anyone away, right? So the goal is not to exclude anyone. And I think that that's oftentimes the paradigm that we run into and, and the thought is, well, I already let all these people know and now should I call them back and say, actually, you know, we're having to prioritize, you know, women or this age group or, you know, uh, African-American individuals, Latinx, whomever it may be over you. No, that's not the goal. The goal is to be very deliberate and strategic up front so that we invite the appropriate individuals to participate from onset. Do you think having a diverse population for the tri clinical trial has increased trust in the vaccine um, amidst communities of color? Um, and I guess the follow-up to that is, what is Moderna doing um, to in addition to engage in these communities to increase uptake in vaccines? I think that at the very foundation, knowing that and having individuals know that they are represented in the data that's submitted um, is reassuring. Uh, one of the biggest values, I think, in, in having robust data, not just from a safety and efficacy perspective, which is at the very heart of, of why clinical trial diversity is an imperative, um, but it's also to make sure that people also trust the process. Um, we were working against many different barriers, right? Because clinical trials um, traditionally had taken, you know, numerous years to bring a new product to market. Um, and because of the mRNA technology, we were able to move um, at the speed of science and definitely much quicker than what we normally would see. And that was also at a time when there was a lot of skepticism and um, polarization within our country overall. And so I think against that landscape, um, increasing vaccine confidence boils down to, do you trust that the information that they collected is a robust enough and that it includes people like me? Um, I also think we need to consider, you know, what regions the trial was conducted in as well, right? Um, attitudes and behaviors are different around the country um, and certainly outside of the United States. And the way that people live their lives and other social environmental factors can play a role in someone's health. And so I think also making sure, you know, we partnered with over 100 research sites that were geographically located um, across the United States. Um, and that was really important, especially not knowing where COVID hotspots were going to emerge, wanting to make sure that um, we were able to really ensure that the data and, and that our vaccine was safe and effective um, in the heart of, of where the disease is, is most prevalent. Um, but I think overall, people feel like if I'm a part of the process, even if that process maybe doesn't go exactly as I had envisioned it, I was, I received transparent information. There's nothing that's being hidden. Um, and I think it goes a long way to increase vaccine um, confidence overall. I also think what is a contributing factor though to vaccine confidence and vaccine hesitancy is access, right? And what are we doing as um, a community and industry to make sure that we're also distributing vaccine and, and therapeutics um, to those that are most in need? 
it's one thing to say, hey, come be a part of our trials, please. We want to make sure that this is safe and effective. Um, but that's a very small subset of the population, even at 30,000 people who participated. Um, I'll also say that when it comes to communities and kind of standing on the shoulders of those that have already engendered trust in communities, this can't be a one and done situation, right? I think we have this tendency to think, okay, we want to partner with uh, local pharmacies, with different organizations, um, because we want to raise trial awareness and we want everyone to have equitable access to these trials and new therapeutics and vaccines. But we can't then just abandon these community organizations um, once our trials are filled, you know, and so to that end, Moderna continues to partner throughout the entire life cycle um, with these trusted partners. So one is, you know, CVS Health, um, which we have a really strong partnership with, um, but there's a lot of others, uh, Black Health Matters, um, Latino Leaders, UCITOS US, there's, there's numerous organizations that we continue to partner with not just to help raise trial awareness, also to help raise disease awareness, and then to make sure that once a product is available, um, that their member group and individuals who really trust those organizations um, go to to find their information. Um, we also at Moderna have set up a Moderna Foundation, and the goal of the Moderna Foundation, um, as you may be aware, is to help build wealth and health in, in underserved communities. So we um, you know, take a strong stance on, in order to address health equity, you also have to address socioeconomics and how can we help foster um, building a infrastructure that would perpetuate uh, better health outcomes and health equity across the board. It's, it's great to hear about the um, engagement that you're doing in the communities and the, the organizations that you're working with and some of those initiatives, Jamika, because I strongly believe that you're absolutely right. Um, as you said, participation is key, but it can't just be all take. You have to be able to invest in these communities. You have to be able to, you know, use vendors, use labs that are impacted and within these communities, um, invest in building them up, invest in growing wealth, because we, we really can't move forward until those things are done. So it, it's really great to hear that you're partnering in some of those ways to, to give back to those communities as well. Yeah. So I'm curious to know about now the future. Um, yeah. What does the commitment to diversity of the COVID-19 vaccine trials mean for the future of clinical trials? Um, you know, what are some of the key lessons and practices that you hope will carry forward across Moderna and the industry as a whole? Because I think that we've learned some really great things. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts of what does this mean for, for our future? Yeah, I mean, I hope it means that we're now headed in the right direction, right? I feel like we've been kind of stagnant within the industry for decades. Um, this is not new data, right? We've known that there's a huge disparity when it comes to who participates relative to um, disease burden. So I hope this means, you know, we're not going back to the old way. Um, I also hope that it means that, um, that the industry at large views the outcomes and, and the ability to enroll individuals from diverse communities um, in, a, in an expedited timeframe as feasible, right? Um, these aren't mutually exclusive topics, and I feel like they oftentimes get very, you know, segmented. Like, okay, well, if you want diverse populations, it's going to have to be at the stake of, of um, enrollment and bringing these uh, medicines to the, the population and the public fast. And so, um, 
I, I think we've now demonstrated time and time again that it's feasible and we continue to, right? So, I mean, we still have ongoing trials at Moderna. Um, and even as we bridge down into younger populations, you know, we're still seeing that we're able to achieve really high percentages of, of kids of color, of persons of color. Um, and it's because of our deliberate effort. Um, once we as an industry and as a pharmaceutical organization, Biopharm, once we stated to sites, this is what the imperative is, and this is what we need from you, and this is why, this will also help broaden the reach of those in your community that trust you, that may come to you for care. Um, it became much more feasible. We did have to have a lot of conversations around, you know, I'm not accustomed to to interacting with these individuals, or what do I say to people who I've already spoken to, and you know, now all of a sudden they're not, you know, they're not a part of the percentages that you're telling me I need to enroll. Um, and I think we learned, and what we can take from this is how vital it is and how deliberate we must be as early as possible and transparent with the sites about what we need from them. We have to change the mindset of first come, first serve. This is research that we're doing, and we're, we're striving to attain data to make sure that um, what we're doing is safe and effective for the people who are at risk. And so the first come, first serve has been something that I think we've adopted as an industry for years, right? Um, and I think moving forward, that's the thing that I hope sticks with us, at least at Moderna. I know that it will, is that um, we can still run trials, you know, as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. Um, but we can also have adequate representation. I mean, I think as we look beyond just the United States and bringing therapies and vaccines to the world, um, certainly how we look at diversity and inclusion needs to be um, viewed very closely, right? Um, DNI, especially in clinical trials, um, is not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, absolutely. Can't just be a committee, right? You know, because it's so much more important than that. And I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned the global aspect because that that's out there. You know, it's, it's one thing to have the commitment in the U.S., but when you do have global trials, you have to have that commitment in all countries. And there are so many challenges in capturing that data, reporting it out. But having the understanding that you need that cultural competence to be able to engage with these communities, to understand who are the minority communities in these countries, you know, what are what's important to them? What are their challenges and their issues with this industry? Because it's going to be so different in every country you go to. But knowing that you have that awareness that we need to have that intel is a step in the right direction. And I think a lot more than what our industry is used to doing. No, I completely agree. And I think, you know, along those same lines, one of the other biggest learnings is we kind of gloss over health literacy, right? Um, and we assume because we may know the jargon and we've been doing this for, for many, many years that it's widely understood. But, you know, 80% of adults have low health literacy. And then when it comes to clinical trials, or if English is not your, your native language, or if we're going externally in the, into the world and our global trials, what are we doing? to make sure that how we explain our research and how we explain what to expect and the process, um, that we're doing so with the audience in mind so they actually understand. Because I think that's where a lot of fear and mistrust is driven, right? Is that, what are you not telling me? What, you know, you've used these words that I don't understand and is it to try and, you know, hide something or you're speaking so far over me that, um, I want to participate either from an altruistic perspective or because I have, you know, this disease or, 
or I'm at risk. Um, but oftentimes people enter clinical trials not because they actually fully understand what they're signing up for. And so I think this has also taught us the importance of creating materials for the specific audiences and that people are not a monolith. And so we need to really focus on um, how we speak to different groups, older adults, people of different uh, racial ethnic groups, people in different regions of the world with different um, social or cultural beliefs and sensitivities. We have to be mindful of that. We have moved past the days, I think, of assuming that we can provide one brochure or basic material, and that is a, a recruitment strategy, and that's going to do the job to raise awareness of our trials or of a disease. Um, we also can leverage digital. Um, I think we've seen a lot with the decentralized model, right, and how we actually can bring trials to people as opposed to have them come to us. And when we finally are able to meet people where they are, I think that it just expands exponentially those that, that have access to participating in, in groundbreaking medicine. You're absolutely right. And we, we just spoke moments ago about, you know, we're not asking these people to participate. And if you don't ask, they won't come. But this is part of that ask. If you're going to make it very difficult for them to participate for financial reasons, logistical reasons, scheduling, if you're not, if you're presenting, presenting them with material that they feel has been designed to exclude them based on their education, educational level, based on their native language, then that's not inviting them. So it's not simply reaching out to the students and letting them know and educating them on these are the clinical trials, these are the ones you can participate in, but making the clinical trials so they're accepting of these communities um, because that that's a huge step. And I mean, I think we've all had situations in life where we've just felt like we don't belong here. Like this is, I don't fully understand this. This was not made for me. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about right now. When we make schedules so condensed that it's impossible to have a full-time job or it's impossible to care for your children, that's exclusion. So we really do need to take all of these things into consideration when designing the protocol. That's part of the ask, that's part of the invitation. Yeah, it's huge. And, and including the community in the design pro, the, the design phase of the protocol, right? I mean, I think that we oftentimes get so siloed and we're thinking, okay, well, we need to develop a protocol that is scientifically sound, um, but are we you know, being overly restrictive and therefore excluding, you know, significant numbers of people, maybe because of BMI, um, you know, also, is this even feasible based on, on the life cycle or the patient journey themselves, right? Um, you know, I think about, I've, I've participated in a clinical trial in the past because I, I wanted to understand, okay, this is what I do, um, but what is it like to actually be on the opposite side? And I think we develop protocols without thinking about the practical, you know, application of it. And is this actually feasible? Um, COVID and the pandemic has allowed for us to leverage telehealth and home health in ways that I think um, propelled us light years. And in doing so, also opened the door to make sure that we're able to get into more neighborhoods. So I guess that's that's a good segue into, into one of my next questions. And and that's more about your ongoing vaccination trials. Um, what's what's next for you um, in those? Infectious disease is definitely, you know, a, a big interest to Moderna. Um, infectious diseases continue to disproportionately impact communities of color. But then even beyond the United States on a global, you know, phase, how can we bring 
medicine to the most people. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of work that we need to do to educate individuals around all the different infectious diseases out there and what the implications are. Um, you know, we think of flu and we think of RSV or COVID or HIV, right? But there's a whole host beyond that. Um, you think Zika, you think, um, you know, EBV mono, right? Um, things that still stay dormant in your body over time. And um, if we can somehow prevent primary infection for a lot of these different diseases, how, um, what we can do for communities and for public health overall. Um, so I think we'll see a lot more with vaccines um, out of Moderna and hopefully out of the industry. Um, bringing better health to all populations is at the very core of of Moderna and our values um, and what we think the potential for mRNA um, is. And so we'll continue to explore that. Um, and then we also have um, outside of outside of infectious disease oncology and rare diseases, right? Where there's um, oftentimes, you know, an unmet need, there's, there's no um, current therapies to help support some of these rare diseases. And um, that's very near and dear to Moderna as well. And so I think there's, um, immense possibilities for the mRNA platform and the potential. Um, and my hope is that we continue to include as many populations as possible in our research because it will just provide for even more robust data and hopefully um, land it with better health outcomes for our society as a whole. And I think we have to also take each study independently and look at holistically what's best for this program, right? What's best for the intended audience? Because we often want, we just want, give me the blueprint, right? What is it that we need to do? Um, but we can't do that. Um, there's so many different nuances and um, what worked previously may not work with a different population or, you know, sites in a different region. And so I think it behooves us to really take the time to put thoughtful and deliberate effort into coming up with the intended demographics and then holding ourselves accountable. Um, I'm so proud to work for an organization who, uh, voices externally and will communicate what our goals are, what we're striving to achieve. Um, it holds us accountable, but it also, I think, reinforces to the public that we are trying to build medicine for all populations and bring better health to all. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's, that's the purpose of this, of this, this podcast or video cast is to really showcase, you know, what are others doing in this industry that's working and how can we learn from that? Because a lot of the things that we've discussed today, Jamika, these are, they can be best practices. I mean, there's strategies that we could easily implement across the board within our industry to potentially have similar outcomes. Yeah. A priority from onset, right? Like that's the thing that I hope people understand and hear is that the goal is to make sure from the very beginning that we're considering this, pivoting mid-trial is always so difficult and doesn't lead to the best outcomes. And so um, if there's anything, you know, as far as best practices that I can impart would be um, to be deliberate upfront and to really take the time to establish the goals and benchmarks and what you're striving to achieve as early on before site selection. Um, that Intel can help inform where you actually put your sites um, so that you can more organically recruit individuals of diverse group or diverse populations. Um, and then it's just a trickle down um, from the materials that are developed to then ways that we go about um, conducting the visits and then 
making sure that we are putting forth the appropriate effort to to retain these individuals throughout the entire you know life cycle of the of the um, trial because it's one thing to to enroll right but what happens after you've received all of your injections and it's now just a follow-up phase that follow-up phase and that data is extremely important to know long-term safety and efficacy and so what are we doing and how are we looking at um, different communities individually and holistically to make sure that we're providing them with the resources to continue to come back for those follow-up visits. Yeah. I mean, like you said, D, this, this, I, this concept of DE&I, it's not just a committee. It has to be woven into every aspect of the drug development journey um, from the very beginning to the very end. And um, you guys are absolutely, absolutely doing that. And again, I mean, I think you said it best when you said people over profit. I mean, that that's that wins every time. So it has been so wonderful to to talk to you today. I have enjoyed it as always. I enjoy every conversation we have. Um, where can people learn more about about Moderna, about your ongoing trials and, you know, any of these initiatives that you've discussed today? Yeah, thank you. So um, the pleasure's truly been mine. I, I appreciate uh, the collaboration um, and the opportunity to speak about something so important. Um, if individuals are interested in any Moderna trials or learning more, um, certainly Moderna's website, which is modernatx.com, um, but also trials.modernatx.com, um, and then they're able to see kind of a litany of different um, trials that we have ongoing across the different therapeutic areas. Um, also, clinicaltrials.gov, I think, continues to be a really great source for, for people. Um, sometimes that might seem difficult to understand a lot of the scientific um, language that's in there. And so um, in that event that, you know, you're welcome to contact the site directly, I think typically on clinicaltrials.gov, site details are included. Uh, but certainly within Moderna, um, you're able to read more about the trial um, and it's in kind of lay terms. So um, most individuals will be able to understand what the trial is is um, comprised of, expected to do, um, how many people we're looking to enroll, um, so on and so forth. Um, and then the Moderna website, I think overall, especially when it comes to kind of a new technology and um, the mRNA platform, I think is a great resource. Um, people have a hard time trusting in something if they don't understand. Um, and that's not to say that everyone needs to be a scientist or, um, you know, a, a virologist or anything of that nature, but being able to read a little bit and see some videos on the basic um, mechanism of action of how mRNA works in the body and how it differs from traditional vaccines, um, I think will also help people feel more comfortable about what they're actually receiving. Um, and all that is available on the Moderna website. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Narika. I can't wait, you know, two, three years down the road from now to reconnect and see how how much things have changed, you know, and how how we see these things being implemented all across the the industry. So I, I'm looking forward to following you and following your trials and just seeing the outcomes. Uh, really appreciate the time and uh, would be an honor to come back um, in the future and kind of have follow up discussions. I know we're going to continue to learn and evolve as an, or, as an industry and as an organization and would love to continue to share those learnings so that um, we can do better overall. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.